tuned in to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That is anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This as ever is your devoted host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse film discussion group, And hey, if you're just discovering our program, welcome. If you're a regular listener, we are excited to have you back. 50 years represents a golden anniversary, and few films are the equivalent of pure gold and lasting quality as The Godfather, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, which made its theatrical debut five decades ago this month on March 14, 1972. Not many movies are as beloved and revered as The Godfather, so I knew I had to recruit a great guest for my exploration of this picture. Luckily, I was able to get Harlan Lebo to join me. Harlan is the author of three seminal books on classic cinema, The Godfather Legacy, Casablanca Behind the Scenes, and Citizen Kane, A Filmmaker's Journey. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for the Digital Future at the University of Southern California, Annenberg. Harlan and I are going to explore why The Godfather remains an all-timer 50 years later, why it still matters, its cultural impact and legacy, and what we can learn from this mafia magnum opus today. Before we take a microscope to the Corleone family DNA, however, let's learn more about the making of The Godfather and where it ranks among cinephiles, a la Wikipedia. The Godfather is a 1972 American epic crime film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who co-wrote the screenplay with Mario Puzo, based on Puzo's best-selling 1969 novel of the same name. The film stars Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone, Al Pacino as his son Michael, James Caan, Richard Castellano, Robert Duvall, Sterling Hayden, John Marley, Richard Conti, Diane Keaton, and John Cazale. It is the first installment in the Godfather trilogy. This story, spanning from 1945 to 1955, chronicles the Corleone family under Patriarch Vito, focusing on the transformation of Michael Corleone from reluctant family outsider to ruthless mafia boss. Paramount Pictures obtained the rights to the novel for the price of $80,000 before it gained popularity. Studio executives had trouble finding a director. The first few candidates turned down the position before Coppola signed on to direct the film, but disagreement followed over casting several characters, in particular Vito and Michael. Coppola held steadfast in his belief that Brando, Pacino, Duvall, and others he had in mind should be cast, and they were. Coppola also insisted that The Godfather be shot on location in and around New York City and that it not be set during modern times, which the studio at first resisted. Filming took place primarily on location around New York City and in Sicily and was completed ahead of schedule. The musical score was composed principally by Nino Rota with additional pieces by Carmine Coppola. While filming, Coppola stated that he felt he could be fired at any point as he knew Paramount executives were not happy with many of the decisions he had made. Coppola was aware that Evans had asked Elia Kazan to take over directing of the film because he feared that Coppola was too inexperienced to cope with the increased size of the production. 
Fortunately, Coppola survived the ordeal and proved to be the ideal director for The Godfather, paving the way for his helming of the 1974 sequel, as well as The Conversation and Apocalypse Now in the 1970s and Godfather Part Three in 1990. The Godfather premiered at the Lowe's State Theater on March 14, 1972 and was widely released in the United States on March 24th of that year. It was the highest grossing film of 1972 and was, for a time, the highest grossing movie ever made, earning between $246 million and $287 million at the box office. The film received universal acclaim from critics and audiences with praise for the performances, particularly those of Brando and Pacino, the directing, screenplay, cinematography, editing, score, and portrayal of the Mafia. The Godfather acted as a catalyst for the successful careers of Coppola, Pacino, and other relative newcomers in the cast and crew. The film also revitalized Brando's career, which had declined in the 1960s, as Brando went on to star in films such as Last Tango in Paris, Superman, and Apocalypse Now in the 1970s. At the 45th Academy Awards, the film won Best Picture, Best Actor for Brando, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Puzo and Coppola. In addition, the seven other Oscar nominations included Pacino, Khan, and Duvall for Best Supporting Actor, and Coppola for Best Director. Since its release, The Godfather has been widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential films ever made, especially in the gangster genre. It was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry of the Library of Congress in 1990, being deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Consider these other accolades, too. The Godfather placed second on the American Film Institute's 2007 list of the 100 greatest American movies of all time, it was voted the best film ever by Time Out, Entertainment Weekly, Empire Magazine, and The Hollywood Reporter, and its screenplay is ranked the second best ever by the Writers Guild of America. Currently, The Godfather commands a 97% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes and an outstanding average critical score of 9.4 out of 10. All right, the next two minutes of audio, they are sure to send tingles up your neck, so listen up with me to The Godfather's 50th anniversary re-release trailer. My father's no different than any other powerful man who's responsible for other people. If I had this part in the picture, it puts me right back up on top again. This Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. He says there's no chance. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. You know my father, men are coming here to kill him. Now you want to get mixed up in the family business? I thought you weren't going to become a man like your father. I never wanted this for you. Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. Satan and all his works? I do renounce him. Don't ask me about my business, Kate. Is it true? Leave the gun. 
take the cannoli. Yes, sir. As you're undoubtedly aware, The Godfather it takes a lot of unexpected twists and turns in its plot, rubbing out key characters at times and in ways you didn't expect and promoting other personalities to the top of the heap. But then again, maybe you weren't aware, which can only mean one thing. You are among the handful of grown-ups who've actually never sat down to watch this 1972 masterwork. And that needs to be fixed, Prano. Because Harlan and I are going to be spilling spoiler secrets as freely and easily as bullets fly from a Tommy gun in our forthcoming conversation. So go ahead, put down the earbuds, go stream or hit play on The Godfather, and come back to the podcast at this point, please. As the rest of us wait for you, we'll give a quick listen to Clemenza's recipe for tasty Italian cuisine. You start out with a little bit of oil, and you fry some garlic. Then you throw in some tomatoes, some tomato paste, you fry it, you make sure it doesn't stick. You got it to a boil, you shove in all your sausage and your meatballs. Huh? And a little bit of wine. And a little bit of sugar. And that's my trick. Everybody godfathered up? It's on with the show. Stepping up to the Cineversary microphone is Harlan Lebo, author of several books on movie masterpieces, including The Godfather Legacy, Casablanca, Behind the Scenes, and Citizen Kane, A Filmmaker's Journey. Harlan is also a senior fellow at the Center for the Digital Future at the University of Southern California, Annenberg, where he writes about cultural history, science, the humanities, society, and the impact of digital technology. Greetings, Harlan, and a great big thank you for agreeing to appear on our podcast to discuss the first Godfather film. Thanks, Eric. I'm very, very happy to join you on this. Fantastic. Uh, So glad you said yes. So let's get into this. Uh, Tell us more about the Godfather Legacy book you wrote years ago. Now, what prompted you to write that book? What did you learn in the course of, you know, researching and writing it? And why do you think it's essential reading for any Godfather fan? Well, the, the short version of that is that somehow I had managed to find my way into writing books about films at their anniversaries. So I had written a book about Citizen Kane for its 50th, Casablanca for its 50th. Ah, like minds. <laughs> and then for the 25th, and the next logical one turned out to be 25th anniversary, mm. which was um, The Godfather. And there couldn't be a more logical movie, I mean, considered by many to be the, well, certainly one of the greatest American films, certainly one of the most popular American films ever made. No question. In fact, one of the world's most popular films. Mm-hmm. It is It is loved the world over by all ages, Everyone loves the film, and it seemed like the natural one to write, and Paramount was willing to cooperate, uh, and so that's that's how it all started. Well, were there any major takeaways, a handful that, that, that you'd like to share, not giving away the store in terms of your book? You want people to read the book, of course, but uh, yeah, w- were there any surprises, uh, unexpected things that you learned when researching the book? Well, I think it was all surprises, actually. When, when you look at a film and you see that it's such an incredible success, I think one of the things we should remember today is no one started out thinking that The Godfather would be one of the great films of all time mm. and certainly the biggest moneymaker of that year and one of the most profitable films ever. Right. It was intended to be a, 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 you know, not a quickie, but certainly a relatively fast, 
inexpensive, uncomplicated production that was going to capitalize on the tremendous success of the book, The Godfather by Mario Puzo, which had been the book of the year of 1971. Oh, yeah. Uh, the real page turner. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we can look back on The Godfather and think and not realize where it came from was let's make a really quick film. Let's film it at the studio, but let's mm-hmm. certainly not film it in New York. And let's just make it happen fast. That, of course, is not at all what happened. And that is what I really learned in my research and writing about the book and the film is what a tremendous challenge it was to make the movie. And my primary source for the book was Al Ruddy. I mean, Francis Coppola is represented in the book many times, too, in quotes. But Francis was working on another film. He was buried in his uh, film with Robin Williams at that moment. Mm-hmm. So Al was my primary source, and he, of course, took the brunt of the controversy and the negotiating and trying to transform the film from a quickie shot at the studio to a massive on-location filming in New York in a very, very challenging environment. Yeah, it's important for listeners to to keep in mind that The Godfather's success was never preordained. This was no guarantee this was just another production on the, the Paramount slate. They didn't necessarily give it its top priority. Folks, you could look all that stuff up. It's common knowledge now in, in terms of how Coppola's feet were held to the fire. He was almost fired. You know, how he had to really go to bat for the actors he believed in who were ultimately cast and so forth. And that, that makes a fascinating topic just unto its own. We're not going to waste everybody's time with known trivia about that stuff today, but I'm sure your book goes into great detail about a lot of those things, right? It does. The casting was one of those many fights mm-hmm. uh, that occurred. And it, it just makes a great backstory. The story of the making of the film is just mm-hmm. as interesting as the story in the film. It was Absolutely. Really filled, filled with intrigue, uh, filmed with underworld connections and how that all evolved in New York, beginning in the March of 1971, when filming began on location, uh, is a tremendous story. And that's what I wrote about. Yeah. No, absolutely. So um, I encourage everybody to give a read to Harlan's book as well as his other books. But I want to uh, ask you, take us back, Harlan, to when you first watched The Godfather. Was it back in 1972, perhaps? And tell us what you love about this film and why it's important to you. No, I, you know, interesting. I did not see it in first run. Uh, I was in high school at the time, just beginning, getting ready to go to college. And one thing led to another and I just didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't have the time to do it. So I did not see it for the first time until it was on television at college. So my first experience with The Godfather was probably the worst experience you could probably have, which was (laughs) seeing it on a small screen with lots of commercials. And so it wasn't until several years later that I saw it on screen. And of course, Mm -hmm. it's tremendous on screen or in uncut form, watching it at the time on videotape and then later CD and then later DVD. And of course, now we can all look forward to this month, the arrival of the ultimate godfather, the final restoration that Francis Coppola is going to do, where he has he has truly transformed the film back to the way it looked in 1972, cleaning up the whole film. All this, all the frames have been cleaned and adjusted. And the big surprise is the sound is absolutely incredible. He's done a wonderful job restoring the sound. So I saw it on screen a few weeks ago, and it's it's better than ever. I have to credit Harlan because he uh, strongly encouraged me to get thee to a local theater, and I did last week. And it was fortuitous because it was only playing for two more days. It was just a limited window in my market. But wow, what what a great return on investment that was because uh, I'd never seen it on the big screen. 
Of course, I own it a home video. I've seen it multiple iterations uh, in my own home theater. But no, there's no comparison to seeing it on a big screen in a theater with, with other human beings. And it was just fantastic. From the first moment when you heard a trumpet at the beginning of the movie, I was mm-hmm. in shock at how, how good it sounded. And you know, very silent, almost digital-like silence in the yes. background. Just wonderful. So let's dig deep here, Harlan. Why, in your opinion, is The Godfather one of the very finest movies ever made? I mean, it's almost a rhetorical question, but why is it worth celebrating 50 years later? Why does it still matter, and how has it stood the test of time? Well, you can take into account all the factors. I mean, the beautiful cinematography, it's it's superbly edited and, of course, you know, beautifully directed. And the script was interpreted by Francis Coppola just perfectly. But what it really boils down to, it's a story that does stand the test of time because it's really the story of family that most of us could never even begin to appreciate how they go through their lives. You have to remember, they're all truly terrible people. They're murderers, pimps, drug dealers. They extort money from people for a living, yet they talk about family and honor. Well, that's a very unusual family to be fascinated by, but uh, the way the family evolves and the performances and characters that Coppola has put on screen with his actors really does make the, the film stand the test of time. In particular, of course, the evolution of Al Pacino's character, Michael, the youngest son, who went from being completely resistant to becoming part of the family business, to becoming the head of the family business, to become the next godfather, right. the one more ruthless, more dangerous than his father could ever imagine to have been. The, the big worry when Gone with the Wind was made in 1939 was that it was going to be a movie about the Civil War. And of course, it's not a movie about the Civil War. It's about the impact of the Civil War mm. on Scarlett O'Hara and other people. Now, the, the Godfather is not about specifically about the mafia. There have been lots of movies about the mafia and the underworld. Uh, it's really a movie about a father and his three sons and how they change over a period of time. Yes, it's a family succession movie, really, if you think about it. It is. It's exactly a family succession movie. Mm -hmm. And it's pulled off so brilliantly by everybody involved. No question. The interest in the movie and the the appeal is so universal. If you look on, on various databases, like the Internet Movie Database, and you see the yes, it has a very popular rating, and you look at who has, you look at the ratings and dig down into them of who's who the people are who are rating it, it's loved by men and women. It's loved by all ages, all ethnicities, all races, uh, people all over the world. Um, it has a special place for me in in movie in uh, in how movies are viewed. Several of us always have these little fun mock arguments over their top ten or top one hundred favorite films, and those lists vary a lot. And of course, there's some that are on everybody's list, but number one on everybody's list of the movie you're most likely to watch if you just churn by it when you're looking around on cable and keep watching it to the end is The Godfather. Undoubtedly. Yes, I think we can all agree. And you know what a close runner-up is? Goodfellas. So that tells you something about the power of mob movies. It certainly is. But, you know, and, and of course, the, the Goodfellas is a whole lot more about the mob in its own way than The Godfather sure. is about the mafia. Mm-hmm. But, but in any case, yeah, it's just such a compelling film to watch entirely based on the wonderful characters, horrible people though they are, that makes it really stand the test of time. Absolutely. To me, The Godfather's worth celebrating, Harlan, because it stands undiminished five decades later as, let's just call it a you know, cinematic testament to the power of myth, to the evergreen quality of compelling storytelling. 
The narrative here, it's never less than captivating, right? The people who inhabit this story and what they represent are endlessly intriguing. And the mythos behind the Corleone family and the satellite characters in this tale, they continue to fuel the imagination. I think it, uh, as you were saying, it, it also still matters because it provides a rare and detailed view of a private and privileged world that, let's face it, the vast majority of us will never encounter, thankfully, a domain that is fabricated for sure, Mm -hmm. yet firmly grounded in reality and one that is intimate. It's personal, it's domestic, it's morally compromised. And most fascinatingly, it's above the law, which is, like I said, something we will never encounter. Coppola had said in an interview that people love to read about an organization that's really going to take care of us. When the courts fail you and the whole American system fails you, you can go to a Don Corleone and get justice. I think that really intrigues viewers, that whole dynamic there. I think it's also stood the test of time, Harlan, because despite their sins, we care about these characters. We're invested in this underworld universe. I want to read you something now by Roger Ebert briefly. He said, the Godfather is told entirely within a closed world. That's why we sympathize with characters who are essentially evil. Don Vito Corleone emerges as a sympathetic and even admirable character. During the entire film, this lifelong professional criminal does nothing of which we can really disapprove. During the movie, we see not a single actual civilian victim of organized crime. No women are trapped into prostitution. No lives wrecked by gambling. No victims of theft, fraud, or protection rackets. The only police officer with a significant speaking role is corrupt. The story views the mafia from the inside. That is its secret, its charm, its spell. I agree. I mean, it's it's exactly that. Uh, and think about the way the movie begins. If you look at any other, quote, film about the mafia, they are usually, they begin with violence or demonstrating how horrible the people are or descriptions yes. of the horrible. But here's a movie that begins with an undertaker talking about his daughter being beaten up by three men and how he's coming to the godfather for help that's the way we learn about the scope and influence of don vito corleone is through his involvement with his friends and and associates and all of this is taking place of course in the setting of his office just as his daughter at the reception for his daughter Right. And isn't that story is so compelling. It pulls you in immediately because you sympathize, you empathize with that caretaker and his plight. And you put yourself in his shoes. Boy, if I couldn't get justice in the real world and something like that happened to my loved one, what would what would I be willing to do? Would I be willing to go to a Don Corleone and ask for his type of justice? And most of us would hopefully say no. But again, there's that what if kind of possibility. So you're pulled in immediately. And and if you're on the caretaker's side, you instantly think, yes, I do want Don Corleone to do something about this. And so right away, we are in the shoes of these characters, this world, as morally compromised as it is. Is, it's it's a fun, vicarious way to live through those characters. That is true. I mean, it's really hard to appreciate the lure of the underworld lifestyle exclusive of the crime. James Kahn, who played Sonny, talked about this a lot, how he knew many people in, in the mafia when he was in New York making this film. Hmm. He associated with them, had dinner. You know, they're charming. Well, they're sociopaths. And sociopaths can draw people in, and they're charming and friendly and gregarious. And as long as you're not having to feel the uh, the thumb on your neck, uh, it's probably a lot of fun to be around them. Uh, you know, Frank Sinatra talked about this a lot too. I mean, he he knew he was dealing with mobsters in many of in a lot of his employment, but he also said they do what they do, uh, but they were giving me a chance that I never got from anybody else. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't participate in any of the crimes, of course. And, you know, so it's, it is incredibly compelling. And Al Ruddy talked about this. Al Ruddy's the producer of the film because that was one of the big controversies was trying to get the film made in New York City. And yes. And you had to deal at the time with the places they wanted to shoot. You had to deal with uh, mafia people. And Al did. So it, it, it is a very compelling lifestyle. And you see that and you see that in Scorsese's movies, too. You know, the dinners and the gregariousness and the laughter. Mm-hmm. But then in Scorsese's movies, you see the up close and personal violence much more than you see in The Godfather. Oh, yeah, right. This is a more romanticized view, for better or worse, and we can talk about that a little bit. But I like what you said a moment ago, because it's a nice segue to my next question, which is, how was The Godfather innovative or different, especially compared to previous Hollywood crime or gangster pictures? Although some argue that The Godfather still romanticizes gangster culture and the wise guy way of life, we can agree it depicted the Italian-American family and the Italian-American experience perhaps more realistically, in no small part because the studio selected an Italian-American well-versed in this culture to direct, and the film cast Italian-Americans in key roles. Yes, and that's true. And as long as you separate the idea that there's a lot of interesting Italian culture in the film, which is perfectly mm-hmm. fine, which just happens to be part of the lifestyle of these very violent people, then it's okay to view it that way. But yes, uh, Coppola, one of Coppola's big missions with the film was to instill the movie with you know a tremendous amount of Italian culture and tradition and food, clothes, um, which all is represented you know, right from the beginning at Connie's wedding reception, which is how the movie begins. So that is completely distinct from the idea of these people are all killers. Right. But but you also think about like in the classic Hollywood period, the Warner gangster era, for example, you have, you know, Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney and, uh, you know, Paul Muni playing these would-be Italian-American gangsters. Yes. And they are not necessarily Italian-American actors. So it just adds an authenticity, a verisimilitude to it. Oh, absolutely. It not only makes the movie more interesting and compelling, but uh, it makes it much more realistic, too. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that the coincidence of the fact that these people were criminals is a separate issue that is dealt with as you go along. But, you know, we've all caught ourselves being rooting for the bad guy. I mean, if a convict escapes from not necessarily a murderer, but someone who's a criminal escapes from jail and is on the run from the cops in a movie, it's really easy to get caught up in rooting for that person. And it's incredibly easy to get drawn into the Corleone family in The Godfather. Sure is. Absolutely. And again, you think about the gangster films made in the censorship era. Well, the characters in The Godfather didn't necessarily have to, you know, like those earlier ones, have to suffer a comeuppance or be brought to justice as a moral message. Mm -hmm. While many of these mobster personalities end up being killed or diminished in The Godfather, it's primarily due to the actions of fellow gangsters who merit their own form of justice and retribution, not the criminal justice system. Yes, and if this movie had been made in 1960, even even a few years earlier, when the, the Hollywood's production code was still strong, this movie could not have been made as it was made because you would have had Michael and everyone else would have had to go to jail and get killed by the end. Yeah, but, that's right. But I think there's a bigger point there that no, they didn't go to jail or they didn't get killed but what price did they pay? Michael paid the price of having to spend the rest of his life doing everything he had fought against for his entire life. And you see that borne out more in Godfather 2 and 3, of course. Yeah, well, that's the real tragedy, as you see it in Godfather Part 2. And the movie ends in Godfather Part 2 with him 
mulling over all the disasters he's created as, in his life and, you know, in his struggle to protect his family, as he always says, mm-hmm. he becomes a real monster to the point where he shoots and kills his own brother right. as part of that. Yep. Leads to the death of his daughter, ultimately, too. So not to get ahead of ourselves or spoilers, I assume most of our listeners have seen the sequels. But uh, if we touch on once in a while, the sequels uh, understand that it is a trilogy. It is a large saga. And we can uh, sometimes need to uh, fast forward a little bit to understand the motivations and the repercussions, as you were saying. The Godfather does stand alone as a film. It's the the sequels are, are excellent. Even number three, as it's been recut, is good. Uh, number two is a brilliant, brilliant film. But number one stands alone Agreed. quite well. <laughs> oh, yeah. We can argue to eternity, which is better, one or two. But that's another conversation for another time. Sure. Just to dovetail back to this uh, thought about how The Godfather differed from previous gangster movies. The Goombas in The Godfather, they're much more psychologically multifaceted, and they benefit from greater character development than many mobsters depicted in prior films, including, for example, the two immediate predecessors to The Godfather, 1968's The Brotherhood and 1969's The Italian Job. I mean, already we're into the modern era at this time in terms of being able to tell more adult, violent stories but it, they still don't have the template just right. And it's not until The Godfather we are able to really show more psychological, uh, multifaceted kind of characters. Right. And The Italian Job is very much a comedy. It's very light. It's about British mobsters. Right. Uh, and that, That's an entirely different film. The Brotherhood, they tried really hard, mm-hmm. but it just did not have the depth and the personality that The Godfather had. And that was a real disaster because... When the Brotherhood came out with, you know, big stars, you know, Kirk Douglas and other people in it, well-directed, you know, pretty good script. It was a real bomb. It, that just made everybody very nervous about spending mm-hmm. money on The Godfather. Therein lies an interesting point, right? Because The Godfather also proved that mob movies could generate huge business and acclaim. It was the box office champ, like he said, for 1972. Briefly, it was the largest grossing picture in history. Yes. It earned 10 Oscar nominations. It won three. And Harlan, it also placed number two on the American Film Institute's 2007 list of the 100 greatest films of all time. It often ranks right up there, either number one or top 10 in most respected lists, too. So, again, it just proves that this subgenre of the gangster film wasn't necessarily the realm of B-pictures or subjugated fare of lesser quality or lesser esteem. Now, remember, and keep in mind, though, Eric, that the, the movies that you mentioned before, uh, you know, Public Enemy with James Cagney. Great movie. Scar, Scarface with Palmini. Those were, a, those were A-list pictures. That's those true. Those were great films. Yes. But they were different. Uh, you don't get at all a sense of the depth of personality it's much more about action, the actions of the characters in those two movies, for example, than anything like what happens in The Godfather. Yeah. The Godfather is entirely about personality with some very limited violence. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would guess that of the three hours the movie runs, and it runs almost exactly three hours, I would guess this probably, what would you say, five total minutes of actual violence in the movie? It's horrifying violence. But there aren't giant shootouts that go on forever that anchor the film like Scarface. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. But let's be honest, too. For 1972, again, we'd already had Bonnie and Clyde and The Wild Bunch and some of these other predecessors. But Mm -hmm. this is pretty intense violence, even if cumulatively it was only about five minutes of in-your-face graphic violence. And it is very graphic, although one of the more graphic scenes when the Godfather's bodyguard, Luca Brasi, is killed when he's garroted. But first, he's pinned to a bar. When someone stabs him in the in the hand with a knife, you never actually see the knife go into his hand. It's so cleverly edited, and you, and the sound is so perfect 
think you see it going into his hand, but you don't. But again, violence is an ongoing theme and a problem for everybody in the movie, but it's not dominating frames of film. And again, put it into context, not violent by today's standards. No not way. at all. I mean, we, we're, we're immune to a lot of this stuff today. But if you went to the theater in 1972 and saw this for the first time, especially if you took, let's say, a family, <laughs> I know it's rated R, yeah. but you would have probably walked out of the theater a little bit shaken. I would have to say you would be. And that movie, if nothing else, I mean, Bonnie and Clyde would be another example where the Motion Picture Association of America really copped out by not having what's called an adult, like an A rating, meaning A for adult, mm. as opposed to an X, which was entirely sex-based. They should have had, and still should have, an A rating, and The Godfather would have been an A-rated film. There's no reason why a child should go to see The Godfather, or Bonnie and Clyde, or a lot of other films mm -hmm. that are particularly violent, or just adult themes. But there's also cause and effect. I know it's it's hard to be sympathetic with killers, but when when James Conn's character, Sonny, the oldest son, is machine gunned to death very graphically, you see the impact on the family immediately of his death, where Tom, played by Robert Duvall, is completely devastated. Um, he has to be the one to tell the godfather, Marlon Brando, that Sonny's been killed. And you see the impact. And then you see the impact when they take the body to the undertaker to be prepared. So we don't want his mother to see him like this is the line. You're so right, because if you really think about it, part of the compelling nature of The Godfather and its ability to sway us, to pull us into this lifestyle, to make us empathize with these sociopathic characters, let's face it, mm -hmm. is, like you said, the repercussions, the reactions to the violence. You gave that great example of, uh, of Tom's reaction. Mm -hmm. And you think about when Michael learns by reading the newspaper that his father has nearly been assassinated, you immediately are in his shoes and you think, oh my goodness, what are you going, what would you do? What are you going to do? You're on Michael's side right away. It's part of what makes you understand his, his rationale, at least a little bit as he continues throughout the movie. So that's a great point. I never really thought much about until you just brought it up. You know, it's, it is interesting, Eric, because mm -hmm. I wouldn't recommend this, but if you cut all the violence out of The Godfather and just talked about what happened instead, so yeah, we shot Mo Green in the eye and, you know, we shotgunned Carmine Cuneo in, the, in an elevator. If you just talked about what Michael did at the end of the movie to consolidate his power and showed no violence in the movie at all, it would still be a great and powerful testament to violence and criminals, and it would still be a great film. But it would totally dilute the brilliant baptism montage sequence that we will talk about in more uh, detail later. Oh, yeah. Sure, but but violence was much more integral to films like, well, Goodfellas mm -hmm. or Public Enemy with James Cagney or Scarface with Paul Muni. Yeah. Those movies could not have been made without violence. No, that's a great point. And, and again, they were decades earlier, right? It's not mm -hmm. that people couldn't handle the violence per se. It's just that they weren't necessarily used to this level. Yeah, but I think uh, Francis Coppola owes a, a debt to Arthur Penn for his direction of Bonnie and Clyde because sure. I think Bonnie and Clyde really softened up the audience to understand what violence on film could look like. Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Now we're going to have a little fun with this next question. We have to keep this conversation moving along and uh, we can talk for hours on it, but we'll try to hit on the key points here. Sure. Harlan, can you point to any ways in which The Godfather was influential on cinema or popular culture? Well, for a start, it was, it was influential on mob culture. FBI surveillance shows that right after The Godfather came out, there was a whole different way of the relationships between the, the mafia leadership, the family leadership and the, um, underlings, you know, with kissing hands and 
dealing with each other the way they do in the movie. It was influential in, a, in several ways, uh, but primarily the idea that an adult film could go for three hours and, and adult by adult, I mean with adult themes, not sex, but that adult themes in a film could go three hours and be wildly successful. That people were willing to watch films about culture, a specific kind of family situation, uh, dynamic characters, men of action. Before The Godfather, epic films with a long runtime, they had an intermission. This movie broke that trend. Right. There was no intermission deliberately. Uh, Gone with the Wind had an intermission, but there really weren't all that many films. I mean, the typical mm -hmm. film for 45 or 50 years in Hollywood was under two hours or barely two hours. Right. They tried everything they could to cut The Godfather. And Bob Evans, who was head of Paramount Studios at the time, definitely assumes more credit for the creation of The Godfather than he should, to the point where Francis Coppola finally had to say, look, you need to back off from this. You, have, you were not involved in making this film. Stop it. But what Bob Evans was credited for, and Coppola always gave him credit for, was that Bob stood behind Francis's interest in keeping the movie at three hours. And they did. In fact, if you look at all the footage that got put back together for the Godfather saga mm -hmm. that ran on television, and it's also available on, in some forms of digital media, there's only one scene out of all of that film that I would have preferred that was in The Godfather. And that's the two minutes where Michael has just returned from Sicily and he's talking with Marlon Brando's character about how, what their future is going to be. Hmm. And that's two minutes out of, you know, three hours. Uh, other than that, there wouldn't have been a lot that would have been able to cut out. So that's at three hours. It was great. It's hard to define, Eric, how it really affected popular culture. Well, I got plenty of ammunition here if you'd like to hear. Please, go for Some it. Some of these are very obvious, right? Because you have a host of films about the mafia and gangsters that came in its wake. I right. mean, Mean Streets, Scarface, Once Upon a Time in America, The Untouchables, Goodfellas, Casino, Donnie Brasco, Gangs of New York, The Irishman. The list goes on forever. All right. And, of course, the TV show The Sopranos is a direct descendant of The Godfather. But I was reading this. This is an interesting little tidbit. I'm not sure you knew about this. But for better or worse, since the release of The Godfather in 1972, more than four in five Hollywood movies that have portrayed Italian-Americans or Italian culture are mob movies. Now, this yeah. is according to the Italic Institute of America. Mm -hmm. Before The Godfather, Harlan, that ratio was less than one in five. So if you are an Italian-American, maybe you take offense to how The Godfather ushered in this era of the vast majority of movies about and featuring Italian-Americans are now mob movies. Maybe that's not a good thing. It's funny, Eric, when you said popular culture, I was immediately shifted to the idea of impact on popular culture, mm. you know, like it would affect clothes. The Godfather had a huge impact on the making of movies. Of course. But you know, it's, it's sad because you're right. There have been a lot of movies made that are about they were both about violence and criminal underworld that do involve Italian characters mm -hmm. or Italian American characters. But that in a, in a way is the nature of films where you're looking for action, interesting topics, and sometimes more than others that they were about Italian Americans. But then you can take a movie like Moonstruck, which is entirely about Italian Americans and the Italian American culture mm -hmm. of New York in 1987. And that has, you know, no, no mob influence at all. It is the rare exception, though, right? Indeed. So. But in terms of making movies, I think it's it's interesting to remember mm -hmm. that 1971, when The Godfather was being made, was a terrible time in Hollywood, where there were few films being made. Uh, so the influence on the making of cinema of this new generation of filmmakers, Arthur Penn having just made, you know, a few years earlier, having made Bonnie and Clyde, but 
Martin Scorsese was on the way and George Lucas was, you know, another one of the San Francisco crowd that worked with Francis Coppola. This whole new generation of filmmakers coming in, uh, some from America, some from Europe, like Roman Polanski, some out of television, like Sidney Lumet. Mm -hmm. And The Godfather really opened the door even farther than Bonnie and Clyde did. Yeah, before The Exorcist, Jaws, or Star Wars, which were huge movies, right? The Godfather Mm -hmm. was kind of the first blockbuster of the new Hollywood era that would be dominated by, as you said, the young filmmakers like Coppola, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, etc. It raked in massive dollars. It served as one of the first must-see event movies, of which there were several in the 1970s and beyond. It's not the first blockbuster, but in the 70s, it could be the first real blockbuster of this wave. I think it really was. But yeah, just uh, kind of rounding out this answer here to this question You think about The Godfather's tone, its cynicism, Mm -hmm. the pessimism, the violent imagery. I contend that The Godfather continued a trend in American cinema, Harlan, in the early 1970s. This trend of telling dark, unsettling stories that mirrored the negative emotional undercurrent of the times, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, when the American public was focused on, on what? The Vietnam War, the fall of the counterculture, the fresh news at the time of Watergate mistrust in the government, et cetera. And this trend would continue, of course, throughout at least the mid-70s or even into the the later 70s. But what an era there in terms of telling uh, decidedly dark stories. Yeah, The Godfather really was the pinnacle of that kind of discussion because Bonnie and Clyde as a character study, people couldn't figure out Bonnie and Clyde, why it was so popular. Well, it was popular because it had a tremendous appeal for a young audience, which had been consistently ignored Mm -hmm. by Hollywood as long as Hollywood has existed, unless you think Andy Hardy films are a way to, to appeal to the teenagers of the 1930s <laughs> right. and 40s. And The Godfather was the same. The Godfather appealed to a young audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the lot, photos of the lines around the block, it's not, it's people under 40, mostly under 30, who are waiting to see that movie in the first days. Yeah. And those were the times of Vietnam, of, of you know, disenfranchisement by not just young people, but older people too, who didn't understand where the, where the world was going. Um, my second most recent book on on the key events of 1969 talks about these things. It was a very unsettled time for many people. Mm-hmm. You know, what did you want to become a person like your parents? Did you want to find a better way for your life? It doesn't mean you were going to become a mobster by seeing The Godfather, mm-hmm. but the appeal of stories that represented big questions about American culture. Right. Questioning the American dream, questioning the government, you know, having a, a pessim- more pessimistic view of life in America, I think, was important for people of that generation. Yes. And if, and then just briefly, if you look at a movie like Chinatown, the only person in the whole movie who really knows what's going on is by far the worst person in the movie. And that's John Houston's character. Yes. He knows what's going on. He knows what the future is going to be like. And that's why he's doing everything he's doing in that movie that that Jack Nicholson's character is trying to figure out. Mm hmm. So Michael Corleone, Al Pacino's character in The Godfather, he does not want to be part of the family business. He wants to come back from being an honored Marine in World War II and do something else. But what's the something else? And he doesn't have time to find out, as his father says when they meet in the garden later on. Not enough time, Michael. Not enough time. This is an alluring kind of subtext there in terms of appealing to a younger generation of of moviegoers because... Again, Michael represents the new wave that's going to come in in the Corleone family, and that's an appealing message just in terms of an interesting character with a different point of view that I think uh, moviegoers would uh, gravitate toward. I think they still do. I mean, if you see a fresh audience going to see who's never seen The Godfather, seeing it today, the themes in the movie resonate 
for any young audience of any era. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about themes here in a moment, so you're absolutely right. I just want to finish here very quickly a couple of other thoughts about how and why Godfather influenced pop culture. Sure. The picture jump-started the careers of Coppola, Pacino, Diane Keaton, John Cazale. Suddenly, uh, his ratio for appearing in masterpieces, I think, is perfect before he unfortunately died. Yes. But it gave a second life to Brando's faltering career. So this was a real jump-starter for a lot of different players involved. It did set a new template for quality in film franchises, did it not? I mean, it created high expectations for its follow-ups because the godfather 2 it knocked it out of the park and is debatably even better than the original possibly standing as the greatest sequel ever made so again setting this template for extreme quality and you talked about how the godfather made the mafia lifestyle look more appealing to the mainstream for better or worse there possibly serving as a motivator for some to get involved in organized crime that's not such a good thing but it is possibly a fact there. I mean, this would have been a, a very influential movie just in terms of opening people's eyes to uh, organized crime, for better or worse. And of course, Harlan, one mark of its enduring popularity is the extent to which the film has been parodied and spoofed innumerable times in movies and TV shows, everything from Saturday Night Live and SCTV to The Simpsons, South Park, Family Guy. If you've seen The Freshman, the movie uh, co-starring Brando, they, they have a lot of fun poking holes at The Godfather. We can go on forever with references here as far as the spoofs and parodies, but you've seen your share, I assume. Uh, yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> I mean, but there are things from the movie and the book that, that instantly are known. If you say, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, you know where that comes from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an infinitely quotable movie. That's another mark on pop culture that we will get into here if we have time. Mm -hmm. Harlan, what themes, messages, or morals to the story, if you will, are explored in The Godfather? What do you take away from it? Well, I mean, the primary one is the impact of violence and the impact Mm -hmm. of treachery. The fact that there is no trust in the movie at all if you start watching the scenes carefully. If you think about Tessio, who knew uh, Vito Corleone from their earliest days in New York together, Uh was a trusted part of the family, yet he turns against the family and becomes the traitor. And that's bad enough. But then after Michael and Tom Hagen discover that Tessio is the traitor, what's the first thing that Tom Hagen says? I always thought it would have been Clemenza, the other primary associate. So these are people who are anticipating people they had known since childhood turning traitor against the family right it's not just the violence it's the level of distrust and treachery totally to me the overwhelming theme of the movie but the primary theme is of what goes on in the movie is the story of michael and how someone can get so caught up in the family even a family as terrible as the corleones and you want to avoid it as much as he wanted to avoid becoming part of the family business yet he not only did but he came more dangerous and entrenched than his father ever was. Yeah, it's fascinating because, again, you think of, of top billing as Marlon Brando. I mean, he, he wins the Oscar, but it's mm-hmm. more Michael's movie, isn't it? And especially the second half of the film on. We can talk about how he really commands the picture and it becomes his story. Oh, yeah. It's the, the story is absolutely the story of Michael. And it was always intended to be. I mean, the fact yeah. Marlon Brando's character is fabulous, but he's in, I believe he's in 37 minutes of the film. But his aura hangs over every second. Sure, yes. But that is a, that's a huge part of the allure of the film, is watching how this, well, not innocent, but certainly this young man who was trying so hard to avoid the life that he knew or he thought he was destined to be part of suddenly became the reality of his life. Yeah, I'm totally in simpatico. I think a key theme here, if I were to summarize kind of what you're talking about, tell me if you disagree, is the outsider 
becomes the insider. Early in the movie, Michael tells Kay how he's different from his family, right? He's mm-hmm. served in World War II, he's gone to college, appears to be on a path that will diverge from that of his father and his brothers. He's not part of Vito's inner circle, nor as close to his parents or his siblings as you would expect the youngest son perhaps to be. But all that changes once he learns of Vito's near killing, at which point Michael rushes to his father's side at the hospital. He embraces the darkness and the vices that surround the Corleone family business, and he quickly becomes an insider, and he earns the trust of his dad, who ultimately bequeaths his power to Michael. And if you follow me on this thread, a sub-theme here, or a coexistent theme, is old world ways versus new world tactics. Vito, of course, exemplifies the old world ways. Michael, the latter. And being forced to hide in Sicily, his father's birthplace, Michael comes to embrace old world ways and thinking, even marrying a native girl. But when she's violently killed and, you know, he's betrayed by his bodyguard, he returns to America a further changed man. Now he's in command, but he abandons his father's old world approach to running the family business, and he adopts his own cold, ruthless, efficient American methodology. And what's that going to involve? It's going to involve violating the old school mobster code of conduct by killing family members, wiping out his business enemies. Recall that Vito had attempted to make peace with the other four mob families. He says enough is enough. We've all lost you know, sons and loved ones here. But Michael famously tells Sonny, it's not personal, it's strictly business. But the truth is that for Michael, it's kind of both. By privately taking these matters personally, Michael can destroy his adversaries who abide by old world mafia ethics and Michael can become more powerful and successful. I, I buy into everything you just said, except the part about the old world difference, because okay. remember that Michael had been consulting with his father after Michael became the de facto head of the family yep. and Vito became his consigliere. Marlon Brando's character knew exactly what was going to happen. And had he been in Mike, had he not given his word that not to break the peace, he would have done exactly the same thing as Michael did. But Michael did not give his word to break the peace. And but it was the natural, extremely ambitious and violent way of, of handling this that none of the other fa- heads of the five families of New York could have anticipated. But that's what the Don, the original Don would have done. Yeah, but recall that, you know, his sister rushes to him angrily and says, you waited until dad was dead to kill my husband. Right. So there's that element of doubt about how much did Vito know and agree to. Did he know that Michael was going to do all these things? I didn't read the book. I'm not an insider to the story necessarily, but I think it could be open to interpretation, but do you believe that Vito knew, move for move, what Michael was going to do after Vito died? I don't recall it from the book either, but then I always consider the movie entirely separate from the book Mm -hmm. um, because so much of the book is written in flashback. But I I assume, based on that one key scene that I thought should have been in the film, that Vito does know what Michael is going to do, or at least would have anticipated that that's what he would do. Killing his own brother-in-law, I don't know about that part. Well, he certainly wouldn't have agreed to Michael killing his own brother. (laughs) I know that doesn't happen in Godfather 1, but if it's part of parcel of a longer story and, and, and Michael's arc of a character, we know the extent to which he is willing to diverge from old world tactics. Yeah, I I don't think I don't think Vito would have killed his own brother. I think he would have banished him to Sicily or something like that. Right. But the other point is, had the when the Don was shot and was completely Mm. out of commission and unconscious, that's when Michael decided he was going to step in and kill Salazzo and his bodyguard, the police captain. Right. Had Vito been conscious, 
and had been able to assume some level of control, he never would have let Michael do that. Well, yeah, so that therein lies a possible point about old world versus new world or Michael versus his father's way of doing things. Well, he would have done it. He just wouldn't have had Michael do it. He would have kept Michael. I see Michael. what you mean. Yeah. He would have had Michael stay out. He desperately wanted to have Michael not be part of the family. This is true. Yes. Any other themes stand out? The whole issue of fam, well, Italian culture, and just looking at all the elements of actual Italian culture in the movie, you know, the way the wedding reception is done, the way the family interacts at, you know, at meals. Coppola actually practiced them all pretending to be their characters and having meals together to try to <laughs> simulate that Italian. I would have loved to have seen that cutting room floor kind of stuff. It would have been great. The primary issue of family and relationships, it's easy to lose that message as part of The Godfather, but it really is there. In fact, it really is the, the core of the story. Mm. Is the family, not family with an F, capital F like mafia family, but anyone's family and how events affect the family and how especially one child in that family is mm -hmm. truly affected is really is the primary theme for me. And then, of course... The issue of violence and the impact of violence at very up close and personal violence is all is just as important. As Sonny says, this is not shooting them at a distance. This is uh, putting your gun to his head and getting their brains all over your nice Ivy League suit. Well quoted. Absolutely. Great yeah. stuff, Harlan. I totally agree with every theme you brought up. Just a couple more food for thought sure. here. Selling your soul for success and for sway. The genius baptism scene that closes the movie with this cross-cutting lines of action in which Michael's henchmen, they wipe out his rivals and his betrayers while Michael stands before a priest in a church and Michael verbally agrees to renounce Satan and all his works and promises. This scene underscores an important message to me, that each of us faces a constant choice between the sacred and the profane, between fidelity and treachery, and between love and hate. So I, I just think that Coppola and his team do a masterful job of underscoring that message in that whole extended sequence. I think they do, but I think it's important to remember, Eric, it took me marrying someone who was Catholic to understand that scene. Michael is not speaking for himself in that scene. At a Catholic christening like that, he's speaking for the child who is not able to speak because it's a baby. But the baby's name just happened to be Michael, too. They should have given they should have given him another name. But you're right. I mean, he's in a sense, since he knows exactly what's happening out in the world at that very moment. Yeah, it's it's the great contrast you just described. Technically, you may be absolutely correct. And I was raised Catholic, so I should know that myself. But I kind uh -huh. of forgot. You're right. But to those non-Catholics and those who just want to pay attention to the themes in the story, it makes perfect sense that we are interpreting Michael saying these words out loud and then Coppola juxtaposing those images with extreme violence in which he does appear to be not renouncing Satan and his works and actions. So yes, absolutely. It is meant to be ironic and hypocritical, I interpret it as. And you're right. It is that case. And of course, even though he's speaking for the child, he's also speaking for himself. And yes. of course, it's a complete fraud. Mm -hmm. But it, through all of this, and this is what Michael would, of course, say, is that he did all of this not just to consolidate power, not to kill out off his enemies, but it was all done to protect his family. It was always done to protect his family. That was his constant, well, I'd say excuse for everything he did. And that goes right through to Godfather Part 3. Sure. But the irony, of course, is that even though that's his ambition, he ultimately undercuts the family and he wipes out some of the family. So, again, hypocritical. Of course, Harlan, a central tenet or message of the Godfather is the corrupting nature of power and how clout, control, and influence are more important than family. 
And hand-in-hand hand with that is the concept of the death of the American dream at the hands of capitalist ambition. Recall the opening words of the film, I Believe in America. But in his excellent recent write-up published at deepfocusreview.com, Brian Eggert wrote this. He said, The Godfather dramatizes how the American dream has failed, leaving only raw capitalism, epitomized by the brutality of the Corleones under Michael. If the family under Don Vito represents the fantasy of having the power to enforce the American dream, criminally achieved though it may be, the family under Michael sacrifices familial solidarity for corporate greed and stability. Don Vito understood the criminal enterprise served the family, which must be protected and appreciated. Michael turns the family business from a mom-and-pop shop to a corporation bent on mergers and acquisitions, not unlike Gulf and Western, the conglomerate that purchased Paramount in 1966. Egger continues with, The film in Coppola's hands, then, reveals that the dog-eat-dog nature of American capitalism has literally closed the door on the family. Coppola shows this twice, first when Michael shuts the phone booth door on Kay, who must stand in the cold outside while he learns of the attempted assassination of his father, second in the famous final shot when Michael's office door shuts on Kay, creating a permanent barrier between the two. The film shows that not even the Corleone family can survive capitalist greed. The family unit endures, to be sure, but it's at the cost of love, trust, and everything that made the family so appealing under the rule of Don Vito. A very insightful reading there from Brian Eggert. One more theme, which is appearances can be deceiving. Even though he looks weakened after the assassination attempt on his life, Vito demonstrates, I think, his cunning and his powers of perception by choosing Michael as his successor and advising him on who to trust and not to trust. You might not necessarily, if you'd never seen the movie or read the story, uh, assume that Michael was going to assume command. Because at first glance, Michael appears to be a laid-back, introverted, and deferential individual. He's younger. He's more diminutive than his brothers. He's even shorter than Kay, if you really size them up. Yes. But we learn how strong-willed, devious, commanding, and explosive he can be, regardless of his physical stature or his younger age. As the eldest, the most verbose, the tallest, and debatably the most handsome son, Sonny would seem to be the ideal heir to his father's throne, and he likely would have continued to be, but we soon see how his volatile nature handicaps his judgment leads to his demise. That's not meant to happen. So it's not meant for him to assume the command there. We discover, as Michael does, that many characters we didn't necessarily suspect end up betraying the Corleone family. You were talking about Tessio. There's also Carlo. There's Barzini. There's Pauli, and even one of Michael's bodyguards in Sicily. So this treachery of appearances can be deceiving there, too. And even the movie's title is deceptive, Harlan, because you'd think perhaps the story is named after Vito, the Godfather, when it could instead be a reference to the other Godfather, Michael, who dominates the second half of the tale. So, again, the message here is appearances can be a little deceiving. They can be, and they were throughout. And of course, that was the great regret. And you see that on the face of Vito when he comes home and discovers he's still in bed, still recovering, and he's told that Michael is the one who killed Salazzo and the police captain. Yes. That he never wanted that. So nope. in the strict in the strict conduct of the family, yes, Sonny, had he survived, would have been the natural heir, whether he was competent or not. And Fredo, after Sonny's death, there was no chance that Fredo would have assumed that power. No. Uh, and Tom, who would have been the the likely, you know, adopted son to take over, was not Sicilian. That's so right. there was no chance for him either. Nope. So had Michael not been the one who was killed, 
the enemies and had to wind up in Sicily, it probably would then have been ceded to either Tessio or Clemenza, probably Tessio. But it's so interesting to think about that hierarchical chain of command, and it had to come down to the last man at the bottom of the totem pole, Michael. Yes. As Vito said, I never wanted this for you. It was never intended for him. Mm -hmm. Good to keep in mind. So, Harlan, why was Francis Ford Coppola the ideal director for The Godfather? What special qualities does he bring to the movie? Well, Francis Coppola was certainly the ideal director when you look back on what happened. He was... And he was considered the ideal director at the time, primarily because he had a modest track record as a director. Mm -hmm. He would be hired. He could be hired inexpensively. And he was Italian or Italian-American descent. And at the time, there was tremendous pressure in the film and television business about Italian-Americans and their how they were depicted on television and in films, which was primarily as violent underworld characters uh, to the point where you couldn't say the word mafia or Cosa Nostra hmm. in a movie or on TV. And if you see a movie like Bullet with Steve McQueen, they talk about the organization hmm. um, or the mob. <laughs> yeah, they have to use euphemisms like the underworld yes. or something. So the fact that he could placate in some ways that the Italian-American community was a superficial reason why he was chosen. Of course, no one realized that he wanted to take the book and turn it into a real work of art that talked about family and not a superficial movie about a shoot him up done on a budget where he wanted to do it on location. He wanted to film it in New York and he wanted to give it all that Italian culture other than the mafia parts of it that really added to the richness of the movie. So he was ideal for it as he was ideal for, well, of course, by then part two and part three were his to determine. And that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Okay. We've got to wrap things up here. And I, we always ask our guests, here we are feeding a 50th birthday, and it's customary, Harlan, to give presents on birthdays. Only it's the fans who continue to receive the wrapped goodies. So what is The Godfather's greatest gift to viewers? Well, it's really a very tangible gift this time, which is the arrival of the 50th anniversary pure restoration of the film mm. uh, in form of Blu-ray and 4K discs that will come out, that are coming out in March of 2022 specifically to celebrate the uh, 50th anniversary of the film. And what Coppola has done is he's taken the footage back to exactly the way it looked in 1972. It isn't like one of the intermediate steps when they've made other restorations. They've cleaned every frame. They've goosed up the sound, which is just spectacular. So really, and then I'm sure that that is the version that's going to start to be shown if you download it and stream it as well. Uh, I don't know when that will start, but certainly the disc is a great gift. And anyone who likes The Godfather will love that gift. But the gift really is timeless cinema quality. Uh, the film is as good today and as interesting today and as relevant today as it was 50 years ago. Yes, sir. And I think it will be another 50 years. Mm -hmm. 50 years from now, we'll still be watching the film and still realizing how brilliant it is. No question about it. In my view, I totally agree. The Godfather's greatest gift is that, kind of like the concept of a perpetual motion machine that defies the laws of physics and logic, mm -hmm. it never ages. 50 years have only elevated the stature of what long ago was already considered an exceptional and eternally memorable motion picture, thanks to two particular facets. Unforgettable scenes and set pieces, as well as infinitely quotable lines that have become sacrosanct in pop culture. Brando's recitation of the film's most famous line, which is, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, to me, it forever brings nostalgic joy to me and to the repeat viewer, regardless of its nefarious true meaning. You know, we can never unsee that decapitated horse head. We can never unhear the screams of Jack Waltz discovering that head. 
wrapped fish have taken on a whole new connotation since 1972, Harlan. Oh, yeah. Michael's tense meeting with Salazzo and the police captain will always enthrall. After witnessing how meticulous Clemenza is with culinary matters like making sauce, as he is with the minutia required of a well-planned murder, we can appreciate why cannoli is worth saving even if we've never actually tasted this Italian confection. And the film's concluding baptism montage, juxtaposing a holy rite with shrewdly orchestrated acts of carnage, is set to some eerie church organ music and this superb editing. It's legend-making stuff that continues to demonstrate why Coppola was, in my opinion, the finest American filmmaker of the 1970s. I mean, his body of work stands unto itself. Sure. And lastly, another greatest gift is the scintillating cinematography of Gordon Willis. He immediately establishes the dark emotional milieu of this Costa Nostra epic with his dimly lit, darkly furnished Corleone office, the perfect lair for backroom dirty dealing and kingmaking, right? Yes. He contrasts the deep browns, the engulfing blacks of Vito's restricted sanctum with the sun-saturated outdoor shots of the wedding, and he creates a visually and emotionally contrasting lighting palette. And throughout the film, Willis demonstrates with moderately to predominantly dark compositions how shades of doubt and fear and anger and weariness can engulf one or more characters. So a big shout out to Gordon Willis. So walk us through your newly expanded book, Citizen Kane, A Filmmaker's Journey. And is there anything else you're also currently working on that listeners should check out, Harlan? Well, I think this is the one that really is worth considering. I've had great good fortune to be able to write books about the three films that are routinely considered the best American films of all time, The Godfather, Casablanca, and Citizen Kane. And I wrote a book on Citizen Kane for its 75th anniversary. I'd done a coffee table book for the 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. But even in the five years since I wrote the 75th anniversary book, a lot of new material about the film has come out, has revealed itself through some archives that have opened up, uh, some photos that are now available that I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And the result is I was given the opportunity by Angel City Press last year to do an expanded edition of that book. And I did. And so my original 2016 book on Citizen Kane now has 16,000 additional words, uh, 72 additional images, and now is 102 images scattered throughout the book. And it digs even deeper into all levels of the incredible story of the making of Citizen Kane. The greatness of the film is matched by the incredible challenge and story behind the making of the film itself. Not just this 24-year-old named Arson Wells coming to Los Angeles and Hollywood to make the film, but the infighting at the studio, all which has become more more vivid in the last five years that I've been doing the research. Mm. The pressure on him to produce the film. And then afterward, the plot led by media mogul William Randolph Hearst to suppress the film destroy the film and when that wasn't successful to try to discredit and destroy orson wells himself and i think all this is even more vivid in the current volume and i'm very happy with it any opportunity to add sixteen thousand words to a book that's another 45 pages of material was a, a great good fortune on my part and i'm very lucky to have been able to do that so it is a tremendous story for those who like the stories about the minutiae of making a movie i think there's a lot there If you like the story about the underhanded dealings of media and and corporate America, uh, that's there as well in very large measure. And it all winds up with somehow, some way, this film survived all of it. And Citizen Kane was and is still considered the uh, great American film of all time. Well, you know what this means, right? Because you've... (laughs) 
you're probably going to have to revisit Citizen Kane another 10 years or five years from now because they'll likely uncover even more. So it's the gift that keeps on giving there in terms of, you know, the evergreen nature of a masterpiece like Citizen Kane, but also your passion for it. It sounds like this was a a labor of love on your part and something that was a lot of fun to revisit, I assume. It's very fun. There's a lot going on there. It's tremendous. It's You see, it's interesting. You see the photos of this 24-year-old kid. I mean, he was 24 Incredible. when he signed his contract and 25 when he was making the movie. And you'd see this sort of wild-haired 25-year-old kid. And then you realize that 10 minutes before, he'd been in full makeup as a 60-year-old executive looking absolutely perfect in what I consider the best acting role ever in an American film. Uh, don't even get me started on Orson Welles. He's a great personal hero of mine and endlessly fascinating uh, character in American history. Well, I encourage everybody to read all about it. Yes. That book, of course, is available, you know, anywhere you want to order it, Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere else. Awesome. The Godfather book is a little tougher. It's out of print now, but it's available on so for some pretty high prices, if anybody wants it, they're welcome to write to me. I have a fair number of copies. I'm more than happy to get a copy into your hands. Is there a way they can get in touch with you? I try to stick strictly with email, but for reaching out to me, it's lebo-projects at gmail.com. And it's L-E-B-O. Projects at gmail.com. Always glad to answer questions. Oh, that's very, very kind and generous of you. Well, Harlan, I appreciate your passion for The Godfather and your patience because we talked a lot longer than I had anticipated. And so I apologize about that. But it was just such a pleasure to speak with you at length about one of the great American masterpieces that is now celebrating a 50th anniversary. So thank you so much for appearing on Cineversary, Harlan. A pleasure, Eric. Always fun to talk about The Godfather. Fortunately, I didn't have to make Harlan an offer he couldn't refuse because he was instantly eager to join me as guest this month upon my request. And what a guest he proved to be. Grazie, Mr. Lebo, for helping to make this installment a special one with your insights, observations, and expertise on The Godfather. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash Donate Cineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com, and that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. It's been said that April showers bring May flowers. But for Cineversary, it's more like April singing and dancing bring guests entrancing. Next month, you definitely don't want to miss our podcast when we will wish a big 70th happy birthday to possibly the greatest classic Hollywood musical of them all, Singing in the Rain, co-directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan. And joining me will be none other than Turner Classic Movies host Alicia Malone, who absolutely adores this movie. (laughs) 
Until then, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies. Because they're not getting older, they're getting godfatherier. Thanks, as always, for giving us a listen. Thank you.